eager anticipation, with confident expectation that we're going to hear from you. God, that you have something to say to us, Lord, and there's a reason uh, why you've brought us here tonight, God, and I would, I, I would ask that uh, you would help us see what those reasons are, God, what you need to speak to us specifically, personally, um, and also as a group, as your body of Christ, as your, uh, as your bride, Lord, and I pray that through this text, there would be a combination of, of, of challenges and, and encouragement and uh, most of all, the recognition of your love and grace for us, God, as we look at uh, a tragic event, um, several tragic events that kind of overlap on top of each other. Lord, we pray that we would be able to see your grace in the midst of all of it, Lord. So fill us with your spirit, guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were with us last week, uh, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And to recap, if you recall David, he stayed home from the battle when he was supposed to go out to battle. He sent Joab and the rest of the army to continue fighting with the Ammonites. But David, in his complacency, in his compromise, he stayed back. The chapter before that, God was trying to teach him, hey, the nation is only going to be victorious if you engage in the battle. So God tried to set him up for success, but David didn't implement the lesson that he learned in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Well, what happened, if you remember, when he stayed home, he's walking on his porch, or sorry, on his, on his, um, the roof, the porch, they have porches then? Yeah, I think so. Um, and he sees who? He sees Bathsheba, right? She's naked. Uh, she's cleansing herself. She just got done with her monthly cycle. And he lusts after her. And then he sends some people to inquire of her. And we see God giving David so many different warnings. He knows this family. He knows the grandfather, the father, the husband. They all serve in the palace. And yet David, he doesn't take the warning signs. He continues to follow through in this sin. He ends up committing adultery, which is later followed by him committing murder against Uriah. And we see through these acts that David has to face some serious consequences. And we talked about the cost of complacency, just giving in a little bit, not being in God's will, not doing what he's asking us to do with the little things and how that can absolutely destroy us in the bigger things. And it's so easy for us to say, is it really a big deal if I pray today? Is it really a big deal if I do what God's asking me to do? Is it really a big deal if I read my Bible today? And I would say, according to the story of David, yeah, all those things are a big deal. Not that you're condemned from not doing these things, but we see the reality of the scriptures is we're one lazy decision away from absolutely wrecking everything that God's done for us in our lives. And that's exactly what we see David do in this text. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to see the prophet Nathan, he confronts David all in an effort to expose David's sin. Well, with this confrontation is going to come confession. And through this confession, David is going to be cleansed from his sin. Title of this teaching is cleansed through confession. Cleansed through confession. It's 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. 
It says, and we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? We like to focus on the first part, right? If we confess our sins, God will forgive us. But it doesn't just say he'll forgive us, he'll also cleanse us. See, this cleansing, it also often comes to the form of discipline. God, he doesn't just forgive us of our sins, but just as every good father would, he tries to prevent us from falling back into the same sins. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 6, he says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him, for whom the Lord chastens, he loves. And he scourges, scourges every son whom he receives. See, God's cleansing often comes to the form of discipline. And the Lord, he disciplines the ones he loves. He disciplines his children because he doesn't just want to take the weight of sin off of us. He wants us, wants to prevent us from falling back into that sin, from falling back into a place where we're attempting to bear a burden that Jesus bore on our behalf. We'll see this happen in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you would with me, it's verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Before we get into this parable, we see that God had to send Nathan. But we see throughout the Bible, the Psalms, uh, David is a form of a prophet. He is a prophet. God speaks to him directly. So why didn't God speak to David directly? Maybe he was. Maybe he was trying to convict David. The sins that he committed were obviously sins. We're not talking about gray areas. We're talking about adultery, murder, deception, among other things. David likely wasn't listening to the conviction of the Lord. And now God... He has to send another person to get the message across. See, when we stop listening to conviction, we can expect confrontation. When we stop listening to the Lord and we quench the spirit and we pretend like our sins, okay, we can expect God to send someone into our life to confront us with our sin. Because here's the reality. Grace, grace pursues. Grace pursues. And God's grace, often it's displayed through people with messages to confront us with our sin. That's all grace. It's not God trying to embarrass us or shame us. It's grace. He's trying to get our attention. Grace pursues and it persists and it continues to come and come and come until we recognize the error of our ways and we turn back to the Lord. This was an act of grace. Second Samuel chapter 12, we see this parable that Nathan communicates. So we see in the same city, there are two men, one's rich and one's poor. The parable continues in verse two. It says, the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So because David 
can't see the obvious reality and nature of his sin. Again, God sends Nathan, but he doesn't just send Nathan. He sends Nathan with a very unique message. This is point number one. God reveals our sins in unique ways. God reveals our sins in unique ways. Let me preface this by saying sometimes it's not unique, but in this text, it absolutely is unique. Sometimes we don't see the obvious error of our ways and we need God to come into our life and communicate it in some special way so that we finally recognize how we slipped up. Jesus does this throughout the Gospels. Let me show you one story in Luke chapter 7. Stories often referred to as the sinful woman, as if there's only one sinful woman, right? But this woman, she was likely a prostitute, but this woman was repentant. This is the one that comes to the feet of Jesus, weeping and wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. She's literally laying her sin at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus, he's in a Pharisee's house and the Pharisee keeps looking down upon this woman. So Jesus is going to give this Pharisee a mini parable to teach him uniquely the error of his ways. It's Luke chapter 7. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one of 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You... Um, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. For Simon the Pharisee, and we don't know how he responded, but for him to realize the nature of his sin, which was primarily pride in this case, putting himself above this sinful woman who recognized that she was a sinner. Simon the Pharisee on the other side, he was blind to his sin. He didn't see it how Jesus saw it. So Jesus had to communicate in a special way to get the message across. When we choose not to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can expect God often to come. Maybe it's through a messenger. Maybe it's through circumstances. Maybe it's through closed doors. Maybe it's through discipline. But we can expect the Lord to communicate to us in unique ways so that we'll get the message because that's grace too. He wants us to understand the nature of our sin and he's determined to reveal the nature of our sin to us whichever way that must happen. With this parable, let's look at it in a, a little bit deeper. We won't get too much into it. But this man that has one ewe lamb, it says that she was like a daughter to him. It was normal in that time period for people to have uh, sheep as pets. Like, who has dogs in here? Okay. Yeah? Okay, do you have a pet sheep? 
Probably not. But during that time, in that era, in that culture, people often had pet sheep like we would have pet dogs. And sheep, okay, they don't do a lot, but they can be fun. They can be interesting. They're very lovable if you spend enough time with them. So I can understand this on some level. But it says that this little sheep was like a daughter. It was part of his family. It was part of his... So the best way that we can understand this is if you picture your dog through all of this, okay? You know, if somebody stole your dog and sacrificed it and they had a whole farm of dogs, that's kind of the best way we can understand it in our culture. But this man loved this little lamb and he takes the little lamb. Look at the end of verse four. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan... He emphasizes the selfishness of the rich man. Remember, the rich man, he had exceeding possessions. He was very wealthy. He didn't have a shortage of lambs. He had plenty of lambs. And he literally took something from someone else, even though he had abundance. This was selfish, and this was actually stealing. And this is the connection that obviously Nathan is making with David. David stole. By committing adultery and sexual immorality, that is stealing. You stole something that belonged to someone else. You stole the wife of Uriah. Look how David responds in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, David was so angry that this guy killed this little lamb. He doesn't realize that he is the guy. And that's why Nathan is communicating this this way so that he sees his sin on someone else and reveals that that's actually his sin. This is point number two. Our sin always looks worse on someone else. Our sin always looks worse on someone else. When you're wearing it, it's pretty disgusting. When I wear it, it's not that bad. I can justify it when I wear the sin, but when you wear it, it's absolutely hideous. But this is often how we walk through life with this prideful, judgmental attitude. And this is no secret to us. This certainly wasn't a secret to Jesus. He addressed it several times. I'll mention one in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is saying, you can't even clearly see the sins in other people until you start looking in the mirror. you got a plank of sin sticking out of your head. Who are you to judge the little speck? You need to address the plank so you can more accurately address the speck. But the reality of it is, we have this tendency in our carnal, sinful nature 
to judge and to look down on other people who practice the same sins as us. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says just that. Romans 2, 1, it says, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, side note, uh, there's different words for judge in the Bible, okay? People always use this Matthew 7 to say, you are not supposed to judge anyone for anything. That's not true. The Bible does call us to judge. It's a different word, okay? The word uh, for condemnation, we're called, the, we're not supposed to condemn anyone. It's the Greek word krino, uh, K-R-I-N-O. But there's also a different kind of judgment that's anakrino, A-N-A-K-R-I-N-O. And that means to evaluate, to examine. And we are called to do that. Remember, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We're not called to condemn people, but we are, the reality of this, to, to be able to call each other out when they're falling short, always speaking the truth in love. That's another study, but I just had to get that out there. Because people hear so many people use that scripture out of context. You're judging, you're calling sin out. It's like, no, the Bible tells us to do that. It's just how we do it. We're not condemning this person. We're pointing to the fact that they could be forgiven through Jesus. The point of this, however, as we mentioned in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, for you who judge practice the same things. So often, the sins that we see in others are the sins that we're committing ourselves, right? And God will bring people into our life to reveal sins to us in our lives, just as he did through Nathan in this parable. David had to see it on someone else because it was hideous on someone else, but he didn't see it in himself. You got people that really irk you, maybe they're coworkers, maybe they're family members, maybe they're friends. But you got people that really rub you the wrong way. It's like, dude, you just look at them with disgust. Well, that's a sin in and of itself. But the reality of it is sometimes those people that we dislike the most, we dislike because they're the most like us. And they're practicing the same sins that we're practicing. And God's using that person in your life to reveal to you the error of your ways just as God used this parable for David. He had to see the sin on someone else. And look at what David says the punishment shall be. He says, as the Lord lives in verse 5, the man who has done this shall surely die, first of all, they're killing the lamb, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Now, this was common practice. If you want to write this down, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, in Exodus 22, 1, if you stole something, you were obligated to return fourfold of what you, uh, of that which you stole. We see Jesus do this with Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he's taking advantage of the people. And Zacchaeus says, I'll return fourfold. That wasn't Zacchaeus being, you know, holier than thou. That was the, the Levitical obligation. He was supposed to return fourfold of anything that he stole from someone. But the idea here is that sincere repentance requires restitution. Sincere, sincere repentance, it requires restitution. Not that I can make everything right for all the sins that I've committed in the past, but I should have a desire and at least make an attempt to try to make things right. Now, here's the reality. There's certain people that I've burned in my past and my addiction and all this. And there's certain people I should not ever come into contact with again. It's just dangerous. But there should be a desire in me to make things right. And as the Lord leads with those certain relationships, I've pursued reconciliation. I've given people money back for things, the friends that I used to, um, 
that I used to hang out with. It's not going to cause me to stumble. The point is, again, that sincere repentance requires restitution. There has to be that desire and the action to want to make things right. This is what David is alluding to. He needs to pay fourfold. Look what he says at the end here of verse 6. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. This horrible, wicked, rich man, he had no pity on a lamb. David had no pity on Uriah. He had no pity on Bathsheba. And he certainly had no pity on those other family members that served in the palace. So look what Nathan says to him in verse 7, 2 Samuel 12, 7. Then Nathan said to him, you are the man. You are the man. You are that rich man. You are the one that stole. And not only did you steal a lamb, you stole one of God's lambs. And not only did you steal one of God's lambs, you killed another one of God's lambs. You are the man, David. You are the rich man in this story. You are the sinner. Nathan had to just come out and confront David and just tell him as it was. He uses the parable, but then he just says, you're the sinner. There's a reality that you are this rich man. You are the one that has committed sin so much worse than this. See, sometimes when we can't see our sin for what it actually is, not only does God try to communicate it to us in unique ways, but often he brings people in our life to confront us. And that's grace I mentioned as well. David had to realize, just as we need to realize, that we're the chief sinner. Just as Paul said, I'm the chief sinner. We've got to recognize, I, I'm the man in this story, okay? You're the man. Not that we've done what David did, hopefully not. But we're the sinner in the story. We're the ones that need forgiveness. We're the ones that need grace. So the text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> Second part of verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. God says, I gave, 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 and I would have even given more. See, we see part of the problem with David was discontentment. He wasn't content with what he had, and he wanted more, right? It was the lust of the flesh that can never be satisfied. But the reality for us is that discontentment, it leads to sin. If we're not content in our relationship with the Lord, first and foremost, then that is going to lead to sin. Why? Because we're always going to be searching. We're always going to be grasping. We're always going to be attempting to cling to something that's going to bring joy and satisfaction into our lives. And it's not a reality. Joy comes from the Lord. And when we fall into this pattern of trying to fulfill the lust of our flesh, recognizing it could never be satisfied, it leads to a path of destruction. The reality of it is, is what, if what you have right now is not enough, then more won't be enough either. If you have nothing or if you have much, Paul says, I learned contentment when I had little, when I had nothing. I was in prison getting beaten. I had nothing but maybe the clothes on my back if they didn't strip those off of me. 
And that's where I learned contentment. When I had nothing, we can fall into this pattern. If I just had a little bit more, I'd be a little happier. It's the American dream, right? But it's not true. When we find ourselves always looking for the next thing, the next thing will eventually be our fall. Hope he keep clinging and grasping and reaching. It's the Proverbs say, grasping for the air or Ecclesiastes. David just couldn't get enough. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord, uh, the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. God says, you made it personal, David. You made it against me. You committed sin against me. You despised the commandments of the Lord. This wasn't just against man. This was directly against God as David being the king of Israel. He had the role of enforcing the moral standard that God had given Israel. He had the primary role of that. He's an enforcer as the king of Israel. And he broke so many of God's laws. God reveals his sin specifically. He makes it very black and white in verse 9. He says, you killed Uriah and you took his wife. Here are your sins. You committed murder and adultery. He doesn't say it was Joab because of what he did. He doesn't say it was the Ammonites because of what they did. No, it was you, David. I'm putting it on you. Not that the, not that Joab and the Ammonites are innocent, but this all happened because of the direction of David. Even though he didn't do it directly, he indirectly is charged with the murder of Uriah. Now the consequences for these sins are capital punishment, both of them. For adultery, both the man and the woman were supposed to be stoned. They were supposed to be stoned. And obviously for committing murder, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the law said that you were to be killed. So he deserved death two times over. Look what happened. Second Samuel chapter 12 Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. God begins to give him some of the consequences for these multiple sins and he says one of the things is that there's going to be bloodshed in your household and we're going to see after this there literally is bloodshed in the household we'll get into some of that next week we see this sin of david literally leads to multiple wars two civil wars because of this sin this sin of david leads to four of his sons dying Four of his sons, not just the one that we see here in this text. It's going to lead to Amnon dying. It's going to lead to Absalom dying. And uh, Adonijah, we'll see him die later on in uh, 1 Kings. Um, he starts another rebellion against David. But I guarantee you, David wasn't thinking about any of these consequences when he gave them to his flesh. 
He wasn't thinking about any of these consequences when he stayed home. He wasn't thinking about anything, any of these consequences when he inquired of Bathsheba. Shoot, he wasn't thinking about any of these consequences when he slept with Bathsheba and probably not when he had Uriah killed. But this is how sin progresses. This is how it grows. I have this um, uh, quote in my office. I'll read it for you. It says, you, many of you know this, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And it's so true. We don't think about all these things when we commit the sin. It was just the small one. But that small one, it promises to become full grown and bring forth death and destruction into our lives. David loses so much through his sin. Part of this consequence, not only is there going to be turmoil in his household god gives a specific prophecy he says i will raise up adversity against you from your own house and i will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor we'll see absalom do this a little bit later he's the fulfillment of this but he also says in verse 12 for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel before the sun David, you did this in secret and you thought you were getting away with it, but I'm going to expose you publicly, okay? I'm going to put you out there. I'm going to, you're the, supposed to be the king. You're supposed to set the standard and I'm going to expose that you didn't set the standard. See, sometimes we think we're getting away with things that we do in the secret place, but God promises you're not getting away with anything. And often, sometimes, God, he exposes the things that he does that we do in the secret place. Jesus says it like this in Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They pretend to be one thing. They're actually another. It says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be, be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have spoken in the ear and in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. God says, hey, those things that you think you're getting away with in the secret place, you're not getting away with them. God's going to expose them. He not, might not expose them publicly like he did with David, but they're going to be exposed eventually. Why? Because he loves us. God exposes us because he loves us. When we continue on in certain sins and we refuse to repent and turn back to the Lord, he keeps coming at us and coming at us and coming at us. And he says, hey, if you won't expose yourself, then I'm going to expose you. But this is for your benefit. I want you to continue to grow. I want you to continue to change. And this thing, it continues to hinder you. God had to expose David. Second Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses with the understanding that he did this against God. God had said, you despise my commandments. And then he says, you despise me. Because you despise my word, you despised me. God takes it personally when we despise or reject his word. We can think, well, I'm going to follow this part of the Bible, but I'm not going to follow this other part. Maybe I don't 
agree with this part of what the Bible says. God is making it clear that when we reject and despise his word, we're rejecting and despising him. He says, you've, re- you've despised the word, you have despised me. Now David realizes, oh my gosh, I have committed this sin against God. Even though, even though David had obviously committed sin against many people, against his own family, against Uriah and Bathsheba's family, obviously all the people that were involved there, he recognizes that first and foremost, this was a sin against God. This is interesting. This Hebrew phrase for I have sinned against the Lord, it's actually only two words. It's hata al Yahweh, hata al Yahweh, literally two words. And that's it. But these two words, it wasn't about the words. It was about the heart behind the words. If you remember King Saul, he was just the opposite, right? He would try to perform these acts of repentance and he would say all these lofty, meaningful words, but they meant nothing because they weren't of the heart. And we see Saul falling back into the same things over and over and over again. David's repentance was through two words. See, it's not about the abundance of our words when we repent. It's always about the heart. God's always looking at the heart. He'll say later on in Psalm 51, he says, against you, Lord, I sin. It was against you I sin. And he's reflecting on specifically what happened here in these last couple chapters. But look what happens at the end of verse 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. Because David confessed in sincerity to the Lord, the Lord is going to forgive him of his sins. This is point number three. Confess to God for forgiveness. Confess to God for forgiveness. Remember, David deserved death. That's why he says you're not going to die. He's not going to give him the consequences that he deserved. He's having mercy on him. This is also a promise for us, as we mentioned in the beginning, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that first part. And we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We can be confident with that. We can rest assured that if God says he'll forgive our sins, if we confess our sins, then he will absolutely forgive our sins. But we have to do it with a sincere heart. It's not just about the words that we say. It's about the heart behind my words. If I'm saying, God, forgive me, like, God, I'm just going to make sure that I say, forgive me on my sins at the end of the day. I'm not going to acknowledge what any of them are. And I'm not really sorry uh, but I want forgiveness, I wouldn't be too sure we're being forgiven of those sins. There's a sincerity that has to come with it. We see Saul, as I mentioned, he wasn't directly forgiven for his sins, even though he confessed, it wasn't from the heart. For us to confess our sins, we have to realize the magnitude of our sins. And David, he saw the magnitude of his sins. For us to confess our sins, we got to recognize we're in need of forgiveness. As we mentioned in Luke chapter 4, or 7 verse 47, Luke 7, 47, he says, he says, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. Remember that story we were talking about with Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. She didn't, she recognized her need 
for forgiveness. And because she had been forgiven for so much, she loved the Lord so much. Simon the Pharisee, he didn't realize his need for forgiveness. So he had a lack of love towards the Lord. We got to recognize our need for forgiveness. And for us to recognize our need for forgiveness, we got to recognize how we've sinned against the Lord. Again, not just the general Lord, forgive me of my sins so I can make sure like, okay, if the rapture happens, then I at least I confess. It's not about that. It's about the heart. And with that heart has to come the recognition that, God, it was this. This is how I, I, I sinned against you. It was pride. It was idolatry. It was how I lashed out. It was, it was anger. It was lust. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I'm confessing these specific sins. I'm acknowledging. I don't want these things anymore, Lord. I'm confessing and I want you to cleanse me from them because I don't want them anymore. I'm coming to you with sincere repentance and confession. I don't want that life anymore. I don't want any of those things. Please forgive me and wash me clean so I don't fall into those things again. However, one of the problems that comes with asking the Lord for forgiveness, I find that some of us, we have a problem accepting the forgiveness. Sometimes it's difficult for us to receive the forgiveness of the Lord, to receive His mercy, to receive His grace. And we hold these things that we've done in the past against ourselves. And we identify ourselves with, this is who I am because this is what I've done. And Jesus says, no, no, this is who you are because this is what I did on the cross. I promise you would become a new creation. You're not the old man anymore. You're walking in the new man. And yes, that's progressive and you're a work in progress, but you are who I say you are. You aren't who you say you are. See, the Bible tells us that we're called to forgive not just people that have wronged us, but also ourselves. And in fact, bottom line with forgiveness, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, in Ephesians 4, 32, it says, forgive others as you have been forgiven from Christ, paraphrased. That includes yourself. Sometimes for some of us, it's easy for us to forgive other people, okay? I don't hold it against you. You know, that's okay. It was a mistake, yada, yada, yada. But it gets difficult to forgive ourselves. See, the way we forgive ourselves, if you struggle with that lack of self-forgiveness, is through self-acceptance. Sometimes, though God has given us the standard and he has called us to be holy, in fact, he says, be perfect in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're supposed to strive for that, but the reality of it is none of us are there and none of us are ever going to get there until the Lord takes us home uh, either way, through death or through the rapture. And sometimes we put the standard of perspective perfection on ourselves when we know we're imperfect beings and then we're shocked when we don't meet the standard of perfection there has to be the reality of self-acceptance the reality that i'm not jesus i'm not jesus and though i know i'm called to be like jesus and i know the spirit is transforming my heart to be more like jesus i ain't there yet and there's gonna be times that i fall into stuff now i'm not gonna justify that and say well it's okay i'm just a sinner but I am going to accept that I'm an imperfect sinner. That's the reality of who I am. And that takes humility. My standard of perfection is often rooted in pride. 
Yes, it's good to set this standard for ourselves, the standard that God gives us. But there's also the reality that we got to accept that we're not there yet. Okay, I made the mistake. Forgetting those things which are behind, I'm going to reach forward to those things which are ahead. I'm going to continue to press on. Okay, I slipped up. I'm going to learn from it. But I'm not holding that thing against myself because Jesus isn't holding that thing against myself. And if I'm holding that thing against myself, I'm saying the cross wasn't enough. God's death on the cross, it can't forgive me of my sins because I can't even forgive myself. If Jesus was willing to die for our sins and he says we're forgiven through his death and resurrection, who are we to question that? I'm not forgiven. Christ proved his love for us. He proved that we were forgiven on the cross. Sometimes it's difficult to accept, but it's absolutely essential. So David, he confesses to the Lord. The Lord forgives him. But look what happens in verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. He says you've given occasion people to commit blasphemy against the lord in other words you misrepresented god and that's what happens anytime that we uh sin in our lives we bear the name christ christians we're misrepresenting his name which is his character he says you made me out to be something that i'm not because of the misrepresentation and because of that he says the child who is born to you will surely die as i mentioned yes the lord will forgive us of our sins but that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for our sins down the road so look how david responds verse 15 then nathan departed to his house and the lord struck the child that uriah's wife bore to david and it became ill david therefore pleaded with god for the child and david fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground so the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground but he would not nor did he eat food with them so david's hoping that god will have grace on him god will have mercy okay maybe god will change his mind or something i'm going to do everything i can i already you know i'm in a state of repentance i'm fasting i'm seeking the lord and i'm just hoping that he bestows grace on me this wasn't bad of david to do but we see it's not going to work. Look what happens in verse 18. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. The child died. That's point number four. God hurts us because he loves us. God hurts us because he loves us. Now that sounds backwards, right? Like why would you hurt someone you love? But that's the nature of the Lord. Because he's a God of love. And as we mentioned before, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, he disciplines the children that he loves. He does hurt us because he loves us. How can we make sense of this? See, the Lord, he often disciplines us and hurts us in the moment, in the present, to try to prevent us from future hurt down the road. He's saying a little bit of hurt now, and this is devastating, right? I couldn't imagine this happening, losing a child like this. But he says, I'm trying to protect you from more hurt later on. I'm trying to prevent you from falling into more acts of murder, more acts of adultery. Yes, the Lord forgives us. 
but he also cleanses us. He disciplines us. And often that discipline hurts. I'm confident that if we were able to see things like God sees things, and we walk through, I know there's people in the church going through this right now. They're going through those seasons of pain, going through those seasons of hurt, having those questions. God, why are you allowing all these things to happen to me? This doesn't even make sense. I, I don't get it. I don't get why you're trying to, what you're trying to show me. And there's a reality because sin in this world, sometimes just things happen. But there's also a reality when it's specifically uh, God's discipline for an individual. If we saw, had foresight to the future and recognized the hurt that God was trying to prevent us from, we would embrace that hurt. We would embrace that. Oh my gosh, Lord, you're doing this so I don't face that. Oh my God, you are so gracious because God's hurt is his grace. God's discipline is his grace. He's trying to prevent us from going the wrong way. And sometimes we have, uh, I don't think, a, a full understanding of the grace of God. Yes, it's unearned, unmerited favor from God, but his discipline is his grace too. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah tried to do what? He tried to run away from the calling of God and God sent a storm. A terrible storm that people almost died in. But that storm was God's grace. He was disciplining Jonah so that he would turn from the error of his ways and turn back to God. And this is why the Lord disciplines us. Yes, it hurts. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But it's necessary. I remember this one time. I've told some of you about this. So before Elizabeth and I got together, we were challenged pretty intensely. And I was supposed to, I went four months without pursuing relationship with her. I wasn't allowed to talk to her about it because we were in term. That was just the nature of it. Uh, And then um, basically got challenged to go two more weeks. Well, I saw her because we lived on the same property. I was like, I wasn't allowed to talk to her at all. It was just really weird. It was, uh, I'm not going to throw people under the bus or anything. It was weird. So... So I'm walking by her, and I, and I see her, and I, I and I go, hey, I just want to know everything's okay, like because it was about like her family. And I was like, every you know everything's okay, don't worry about it. So I opened the door for conversation. I wasn't supposed to talk to her. So later that night, I was with Pastor Chet, and she texted me, and he goes, weren't you told not by him by someone else? Weren't you told not to talk to her for two weeks? I'm like, yeah, bro, I just told her everything's okay. That little act of compromise, it caused me so much pain down the road. As things went on, I was taken, and that's what it was. That's literally what I did. I was taken out of leadership positions. I was taken out of, um, uh, I wasn't able to lead a small group at that time. I was supposed to go to, um, I was supposed to go to the Middle East and they pulled that trip from me. Like it was the first time in my life. And like more than any other time that I wanted to walk away from ministry. I was like, dude, because I opened my mouth. Now I get all these things taken away from me. And I remember talking to Pastor Chet. And he actually gave me a parable to help me see. And he shared these things that were happening in my life. Just like Nathan did. He shared these things. And, I, and he basically told me, I want you to see how this little bit of compromise is going to affect so many things. And then he told me, I'm trying to hurt you. I'm like, what? You're trying to hurt me? And at the time, I was like, man, you're a jerk. Like, why are you trying to hurt me? But through prayer and recognizing the word of God, I know he was doing this because he loved me and he was trying to set me up for success in the future. Why? So many men are taken out of ministry because of relationships, because of premarital sex, because of sexual immorality, because of adultery. And he was hammering these things into my mind. You have to do it God's way and God's way. It crushed me. 
See, God, his way can sometimes hurt. But again, guaranteed, if we saw what he's trying to prevent us from, we would be thankful that he's hurting us on a small scale so that we wouldn't have to face so much pain on a larger scale. So this child dies. Now, this is a picture of the gospel. The son of David dies so that David can be forgiven. This is a picture of Jesus, literally the son of David, who Jesus is referred to as the son of David. This son has to die so that you can be cleansed, so that you can be forgiven. So even in the midst of this horrific story that we go, God, how could you kill a child? He killed his own child for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be tra- uh, cleansed from our transgressions. Second Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. He accepted the consequences of his sin. He fasted during those seven days in hopes that God would change his mind. God didn't. When he recognized the child dies, what does he do? He goes right back to the Lord. There was probably probably many people that wouldn't do this. There's probably many people that would walk away from the Lord for something like this. But David recognizes it's not on God, it's on him. God didn't sin. David's the one that sinned. He brought this upon himself. So God, being a perfect judge, whatever consequence he deems necessary is the consequence that I got to take. And I just got to suck it up and take it and trust him and recognize, hey, he loves me and he's got good intentions for me. It's not that he's trying to beat me down and destroy me. No, he's trying to build me up and help me. So he responds to the discipline of the Lord with worship. It's so inspiring to me. I I don't know if I could do something like this. I pray that it never happens. And if something horrific like this happened, that the Lord would give me the strength to do just that. Because this is absolutely a supernatural thing. But this should also be our response to trials. This should be our response to the discipline of the Lord that we thank him for it. Like how crazy is that? And I'm not saying he should thank God that he took his child, but he should thank God because God's good and he's worthy to be thanked. He's worthy to be praised and he knows what he's doing. He's got a purpose for all of these things, even if they make no sense to us. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 21 then his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? And the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David explains, as we already did, why he was fasting. He was hoping God would be gracious to him. Now, God was gracious to him, okay? David deserved to die. He didn't die. But he was hoping that he'd spare his son as well. But then he says something really important here. He says, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David knows that he doesn't have the power to bring his child back, but he knows God has the power to raise him from the dead. 
God has the power to bring the child unto himself. And this is, we can look at this in scripture and in other places that the Lord, when infants die, when children die, uh, they go to be with the Lord. Uh, that's the grace of God. If you think, man, a child, like this child is in a better place than the, the place that we hope for, that, that we pray that'll come back, uh, that the Lord will come back and take us to every single day. See, God did have grace on David. He brought this child to be with him where David was a flawed father. Now this child is with a perfect father. Now this always brings up the topic of, okay, so how old like is a kid when they're really responsible for their sins? It's uh, referred to as the age of accountability. And personally, me, um, I think it's different for different people. I think uh, the Lord knows when somebody... Um, has enough logic and reason to recognize the truth of God. Because Romans 1 says, we're all without excuse. Every person, uh, if you have lived long enough, the creation, the heavens, all declare the glory of God. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that God uh, created us. So we don't really know the age of that. Okay, after this age, they're responsible for their decision whether or not they come to Jesus. We can't answer that. Only the Lord knows. But we do see this child go to be with the Lord. Second Samuel chapter chapter 12 verse 24 then david comforted bathsheba's wife and went into her and lay with her so she bore a son and he called his name solomon now the lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of nathan the prophet so he called his name jedediah because of the lord so david he comforts Bathsheba first. Now, let's look at this. David did not say, oh my gosh, God never wanted me to be with Bathsheba. I'm going to divorce her. He, he, he didn't do that. He recognized, hey, even though he sinned and this relationship was birthed from sin, the reality that they're together now, they're sealed. Like, there's no, he's not supposed to leave that relationship. He didn't go, oh man, I messed up, Bathsheba, we can't be together. No, he married her. He recognized that God still wanted him to be with her. And with her, he has the son, Solomon. See, there's redemption even in our sin. Even in our worst mistakes, God can redeem them. God makes all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even our shortcomings, even our failures, he will work it out together for good somehow, some way. Because we know Solomon is going to be the next king of Israel. God is going to use, his, use David's sin for his own glory. Look what happened. Second Samuel chapter 12. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah. The people of Ammon. And took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David. And said I have fought against Rabbah. And I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people. Together and encamp against the city. And take it. Lest I take the city. And it be called after my name. This war has been going on since uh, chapter 10 um, when the king offended David by sending those guys back with their beard shaved and everything. 
So this has been going on the whole time, and David's been at home. Now Joab, by the grace of God, he's gaining ground. He's having some victory, and he tells David, hey, listen, you need to come and be a part of the battle if you want to get credit for this thing. And we know that David was supposed to be in this battle all along. Now if David had been in this battle... He wouldn't have fallen into the sin that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and everyone else. But I also believe that Joab wouldn't have been fighting this battle. He's been fighting this battle for about a year now, okay? Because David's not there. Though he's gained ground, he hasn't been victorious. And part of that, I personally believe, is because David isn't there. David will come and there will be victory. But David had to have victory over his sin before He could win a victory for his people. He had to deal with his personal stuff before he could help his people overcome the Ammonites. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 29. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now, that David is fighting back with his people, the people are basically instantly victorious. See, David, he didn't allow his past failures to prevent him from future victories. He said, okay, this is what happened. I got to deal with it. I got to give it to the Lord. Here are my consequences. But he didn't just wallow in his sorrow and never go back out to battle. No, he continued to fight even though he had just fallen. And because of that, He was able to be victorious. So he ends up taking over the Ammonites and he puts this king's crown on. Okay, so this is a talent. That's about 75 pounds. Okay, so imagine 75 pounds of metal sitting on your head. That'd be pretty heavy, but that's what's implied here through this text. This is a, uh, what does a 75 pound crown look like? Like, I don't know. Maybe I should have looked that up. It's kind of interesting. That's wild. But we also see the implications here. Even though David was falling, he kept his crown. He kept his crown. Even though he was in this fallen state, the Lord, he kept him in that same position. Now, this isn't always the case. Sometimes the Lord, when people fall, he keeps them in their positions. Other times, he takes them out of their positions. But for David, we see the Lord kept him in the position of king. And not only that... They end up bringing all this spoil back from the city. It says, in great abundance, God continued to pour out favor on David's life, even though David had messed up. This is the fifth and final point. God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. It's Romans chapter 5. Uh, verse 20, it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. <laughs> where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God's grace is always greater than our sin. The cross covers all sin. See, David, despite the fact that he fell, 
into some hideously wicked sin. The Lord still had grace on him. He bestowed favor. There were victories. See, this is why God often wants to address our sins. So that we can continue to move forward to fight another battle. Because sometimes we're not fit for battle until we fight the internal battle. He says, you fight the internal battle. Now I want you to fight the external battle. And God needs to address our sin so that we're not hindered in our walk, that we're not hindered in our race. It says it like this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. In Hebrews 12, 1, this is where we'll close. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says, if you want to finish the race, sorry, it might not be Paul. We don't know who the author of Hebrews. I lean towards Paul, but who knows? The author of Hebrews says that if we want to finish our race, if we want to continue to fight the good fight of faith and be victorious, we got to lay aside every weight. we got to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. See, God, he wants to free us of all these things. But sometimes we run around with a 100-pound backpack on our, uh, on our backs uh, trying to fight this battle, trying to run this race. And I don't know if you've ever tried to run with a 100-pound bag, but that's pretty difficult, right? It's slow you down. And that's the point. God's saying, I'm trying to get you from point A to point B. And as long as you keep wearing that backpack, it's going to take you forever to get there. If you can lay that aside, we can get there together and we can get there quicker. I can get you to your destination. But if you keep putting obstacles in your own path, it's going to hinder your ability to finish your race. So how do we do this? How do we lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us? First, we got to acknowledge our sin. We got to know what it is. We got to recognize these are the sins in my life. If we don't know, pray the prayer that the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verses 24 to 25. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. And as he reveals those things, I acknowledge them. And then we confess them. We confess them specifically, not just this like... uh um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like, uh, this, this magical thing that I just say, I confess my sins, Lord, forgive me. Like, no, actually confessing the sins with a sincere heart of repentance. I'm acknowledging them and I'm confessing them specifically. And then we repent, we turn from them. We accept the discipline of the Lord, even if it comes way down the road. See, there'd been nine months since David slept with Bathsheba. How do we know that? Because the baby was born. And God didn't confront him till just the before the baby got born. He let him sit there for nine months, basically trying to figure out, giving him opportunities to confess, to repent. But finally, after that time, he confronted him and he disciplined him. And as we do that, we receive his grace and we get back up and fight again. And that's exactly what David does. But it started with that confrontation, which led to that confession, which ultimately led to the cleansing of David. Let's pray. Lord, God, I I pray that we would really learn um, from your word, God, specifically the stuff we talked about tonight. 
God, the, the, everything that your word says, Lord, sometimes we, we run around with that huge backpack on our backs. And, and as David struggled with that sin, as he says in the Psalms, he was, he, he was sleepless and, and he was out of sorts and, and he had conviction and he wasn't responding to it. God, and I pray that we would, Lord, if there's anything going on in our lives, God, that we would give those things to you. Um, that if, uh, if we need to confess to someone else, uh, something that we've done, uh, maybe against them, Lord, you'd, you'd, uh, lead us and nudge us to do that. Cause we know, uh, as you say in James five, confession to man, uh, brings healing God. And, and as we confess and as we repent of the things that, uh, you've called us to confess and repent, Lord, we would receive your cleansing process, knowing that your heart is that we don't keep falling back into the same thing and recognize that your cleansing is a form of your grace. And it's all in an effort to put us back on our feet so that we can t- continue to fight the good fight of faith and run the race that you have for us in Jesus name. Amen.